0: This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Chris Mitchell has had a remarkable career in the media spanning five decades. News Corporation's longest-serving editor worldwide, he's most commonly known for his highly successful 13-year stint as the editor-in-chief of the Australian newspaper, made an officer of the Order of Australia for his service to Indigenous education programs, journalism, and media. Chris has had a unique vantage point and impact on the issues facing Australia in the twenty-first century. The movie that you've chosen, I am so grateful to you because I I adore it. I'm a little bit of a uh, obsessive fan of the film that you've chosen, which is the nineteen eighty-seven cult classic With Nail and I. So tell me
1: about that, Chris. Well, I guess it seems to me that it is a very amusing film, and the more you watch it, the more you see in it. I think the acting performances are fantastic, and Richard E. Grant particularly. I think Uncle Monty is a fabulous role, and I notice online many people say he should have got an Academy Award for it, a British Academy Award. But overall I think he's captured that whole 1960s London thing very well and I've got a lot of friends who, you know, went through the whole, you know, 68 period in London and it seems to me that he's done a reasonably authentic job on it all.
0: Yeah, I, I adore it. The, the thing that's potentially surprising about that film is it's all true. <laughs> so Bruce Robinson who wrote it is the I in yeah, the film yeah. uh, and with now is his real-life friend Vivian who was an alcoholic. I mean, it's actually, the, the real story is a, is a tragedy. I mean, he, he died at the age of 45 injecting alcohol into his stomach because he couldn't, you know, imbibe it quick enough and all that sort of stuff. Um, but just an amazing film that stays with you. And beyond the comedy, it's a love story between those two blokes.
1: It is. And also how they feel about, you know, the advances of Monty. So they're quite tolerant of him, even though they're scared of him. Also, I think some of the scenes, they do stick with you for a long time. Like, I think procuring child's urine so that he can strap it to his, <laughs> ah, ah. It to his leg in case he gets pulled over for DUI. It's, it's hilarious, really. <laughs> and, and the whole episode up in the countryside in Yorkshire is fabulous, yeah.
0: Just one, bring us the finest wines available to humanity. We yeah, want f- them here. Some famous
1: sayings around <laughs> in that movie.
0: <laughs> and I saw a, um, an interview with Richard E. Grant who says, To this day... He is will be walking down the street. He's at least two times a week, and someone will lean out of a car window and shout, "Scrubbers!" <laughs> I must say I liked him in Wawa too. The South oh, African film. What I thought a he story. was fabulous in that. Yeah. yeah. What, and, and that based. I mean, that's his true story. That's
1: yeah, his real life. I mean, his yeah.
0: dad loading a gun yeah. and shooting at him, and yeah. if it had fired, he'd be dead. Yeah. He's uh, a marvelous actor. Isn't uh, he? Uh, absolutely. And, and he wasn't the original choice for that yeah. film. Yeah. So so that uh just a fabulous thing that the, the, another theme in with nail is the obviously the booze um but I wonder in in the in the business and industry and sector that you've been in, how uh central or not uh, a role booze
1: played in the early days was
0: was it was it everyone getting tanked? I mean, I used to work in the advertising in the 80s so everyone was smashed at lunch every day I mean what yeah. was it like
1: look no, I was pretty surprised, especially in Sydney, so Everybody in Brisbane, when I was a young journalist on the on the Telegraph up there, was you know they drink a lot after work. But it was a morning, an afternoon paper, so you'd work in the mornings and then go to the pub when when the paper was out. The culture in Brisbane, when I move in Sydney, when I moved down, was amazing. So because the Journalist club was so close to News Corp, they would always be at the journos, and the journos in those days only closed for Christmas lunch, so it was open twenty four hours a day, three hundred and sixty five days a year, and you could tell, you know, people would stumble out of there at midday and go home and have a sleep before they came back to work and started their shifts, you know, six or seven at night. And I, I was a bit taken aback by it. I remember one particular day in my first week here, the chief sub was um, standing at the bar in the journos with his schooner on the floor and he'd connected all of the straws so that he could stand there and drink it. And I just... Was I've never seen a senior executive on a newspaper behave like that. And later that same night, we were playing pool up on the top floor, and it's probably about three in the morning, and my first week in the job. And one of the subs is in an argument with this chief sub who I won't name, clocks him on the head with the with the eight ball and knocks him out, and he's he's unconscious on the top floor of the journals. And that was my baptism into uh, Sydney journalism. It's pretty amazing, uh, yeah. So, but, look, it's changed, and I think the young ones today are pretty serious i don't think I don't think the booze culture really holds anymore, but it was unbelievable, unbelievable that some people could function. Uh, we're going to stay with the
0: autobiographical theme because you, for your book, and and I don't know if you're doing this just to make me like you, but you're choosing all my favorites. We are going back to the beginning of the last century, and you've chosen. Somerset Maugham's Masterpiece of Human Bondage, published in 1915. Tell us about that book and why you chose it.
1: Well, I I came to Sydney to work initially on the Financial Review, and I met an Englishman there who was a very uh, big fan of Maugham, and he introduced me to Maugham. And I guess the years before that, I'd been working in the day and studying at night, getting my university degree. So most of my reading had been about economics or history or politics. and you know, I then had a good job at the Finn and um, plenty of time to to read for pleasure. And I got into Morm. I think I started with The Moon and Sixpence and I read The Razor's Edge and a lot of the short stories. But the one that really stayed in my mind was Of Human Bondage. And I thought the portrayal of Philip was heartfelt. Sort of almost had me on the first page. I think that whole scene, you know, where he's taken down to kiss his mother goodbye and, you know, he goes off to the grandmother. It's pretty heartrending sort of stuff. And Philip has an incredibly disappointing life. The allegory for his Club Foot, I think, is is really affects Maum and Maum's stutter and Maum's homosexuality and other things. But, you know, he comes out the other end of the book with equanimity, I think. You know, he he learns to put life's disappointments in perspective. And particularly the disappointments he has with women. So I thought Mildred was a pretty shocking character and maybe a bit of a pointer to Maum's, you know, difficult attitude to the the sex. But um, I thought Philip came out of it as a a kind of a heroic figure and I think the book holds well. You know, I noticed that I looked at it last night and a lot of people are still rating it one of the top 50 books of all time. And I do remember back in the, uh, in the late 1980s uh, doing a bit of a search about it and um, it, was, it was still the top, in the top 100 books of the 20th century in sales in the United States at that stage. So 60 years on, it was still selling. Yeah, I, I mean,
0: uh, uh, an undisputed masterpiece. Uh, some of the early writing about religion is uh, just astonishing. Mm. It is, tell me about your uh, relationship to religion. Are you a religious chap?
1: I um, I was raised a Catholic. Um, it was reasonably tricky because my dad was Catholic and um, this is, sounds like a warm story actually, but he was going to be a priest. And um, he left the priesthood or gave up his thoughts of the priesthood to run off with my married refugee mother. He chose a woman, not God. <laughs> he did, yeah. <laughs> or,
0: both, or both, I should say, sorry. <laughs> so um,
1: she was Lutheran, and um, I've only found out recently, working on a book about her life, that, um, that she was actually in the camp in Bonnegilla with her husband. Um, I'd always been told or given to believe that um, she'd left Germany because this relationship had broken up. I didn't realise they'd come as a couple. Right, so she had to fess up to me. I did about 100 hours of interviews with her for, for this book. I think because Dad died early, Mum felt a duty to sort of raise us as Catholics, my sister and I. So um, she um, later that year, she converted. So I I went to a Sunday Mass at Easter and watched my mother being baptised in front of the entire community, which was a pretty unusual thing to do. Um and I guess I felt um, I got a good religious education while I was there, but I kind of abandoned it in uh, in adult life, and I, I haven't really been somebody who's practiced for more than forty years. Um, do, do you pray? I don't really. Um, I guess I feel um, attracted to a more humanist point of view. I've I did a lot of. Um, medieval studies in my undergraduate degree, and I read a lot about Christian mysticism, which I found fascinating, and I I thought it shared a lot with mystical traditions and other religions, but it sort of struck me this absorption in the Godhead was a rather conceited attitude for for a God to have, and I like the idea of karma and what goes around comes around. I like the idea of doing the right thing by your fellow man because your fellow man is your fellow man or fellow woman. Rather than do it either because you're absorbed in your love of God or because you fear hell, all of which seem much less noble inspirations for rectitude, in my view.
0: (laughs) And it's also quite comforting that the bastards get theirs eventually. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. (laughs) When the train comes, the karma train comes into town. Um, One of the sad things about Morn's life is both his parents died before he was 10. Yeah. uh, And, 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 Please say nothing if it makes you uncomfortable. But uh, your dad died when you were at eight, I think.
1: Yeah, just turned eight. And it was quite a tricky day and probably the, the overwhelming memory of my life. So um, we'd been staying up at Terrigal and, um, you know, it was our first holiday in, in Sydney. So at the end of 1964. And they decided we'd go to Wiseman's Ferry for a, a picnic. And uh, we got the, the ferry over uh, from the north side and set up the picnic table um, outside the town and just on the bank. Anyway, he was swimming alone. He got into trouble and, um, my mum had to swim out to try and save him. But, you know, she being of German extraction, she was not a strong swimmer. We never exactly knew why he got into trouble. Um, he had had a pretty bad motorcycle accident a couple of years earlier and might've damaged his heart doing that. Um, I had to sort of stay on the bank and my sister was quite hysterical, obviously, watching the whole scene. So they were only 15 metres offshore, yeah. So I didn't really ever go back there and ever sort of survey the scene until my mum was about 85 and I said, would you like to go and visit? And um, we did. Uh, And she was quite shocked, I think. Her memory of it was, my memory of it was pretty perfect because I was standing on the bank watching it all. But she was in the water, so her memory of it was it was a fast-flowing and difficult stream in which to operate. But, in fact, it's almost the widest part of the Hawkesbury and it was it's quite still the water there. We ended up having to overnight it at the police station. Um, it took four days before they found his body. And um, so we went up and stayed with my aunt, my sister's, my mother's sister in uh, Brisbane while they kept looking for, for Bob. Um, and um i think they found him on christmas day yeah so it's all pretty shocking really yeah. well, a
0: terrible story and and, mm. and how i mean obviously
1: you've built a very successful
0: uh, life and career but how do you feel that informed the demand that you
1: became and are? i think it's in, in a funny way um you know it um it's hard to compete with somebody who everybody thought was reasonably saintly. So most of my dad's friends did regard him as somebody who should have become a priest. You know, he was, and he was very heavily into philosophy. He spoke a lot of strange languages like Aramaic Aramaic and Gaelic and Russian and German. and So he spoke 11 languages. Um, you know, I think for a young man growing up in Brisbane, you know, you you can't compete with somebody who all of your relatives and all of his friends think think of in those terms. And of course, he he never lived long enough to face life this this life's disappointments. So at some level, I I kind of just decided to go my own way. I think my family, my wider family, were disappointed that I chose journalism. Um, there was a I was under a lot of pressure to pick either medicine or or dentistry and I didn't really appeal to me at all. I think in hindsight it all worked pretty well. I think my mum did a good job. She was the one who suggested trying out for a newspaper and I think it was probably the job I was made for really. Yeah. Yeah. Now your your first three choices, I've just adored
0: researching you and your choices Chris. Um, You are sticking with the autobiographical theme but also there's a a theme of love because the Within L&I is about love between two best friends, of human bondage, the Mildred story that you mentioned, unrequited love, and the choice that you have for your song, uh, Love Will Tear Us Apart, Joy Division, 1980, written by Ian Curtis about decaying love. Mm. He, he, as a 19-year-old chap, got married at 18 to Deborah. He wrote that song at 23 about his failing marriage Mm. to to Deborah, and three weeks after he wrote it, he topped himself. That's poor, right. Poor bastard. It was only a
1: single after he was dead. It was released four weeks after he, mm. yeah.
0: So, mm. so tell us why you've chosen that song. I, I, well,
1: for a start, it was one of the earliest records I ever reviewed as a young record reviewer, um, and I oh, loved you, it. You reviewed it? Yeah, I, review, I reviewed it. And Can you remember uh, what you said? I, well, I, I think I initially I reviewed the album Closer, and then I then I wrote about the song. But look, I I suppose I'd always loved the Doors, and um, Ian's voice always reminded me of Jim's voice. I thought the Doors had an ability to take pop music to another level. You know, they they weren't just rock and roll. I love the Stones. You know, I love the Beatles. Still listen to Elvis Presley, um, and I love a lot of modern bands too. But I guess it it struck me that Morrison wrote at a whole other level from you know Mick and Keith or you know, any of the Beatles. And and I think they did too, Joy Division. I think, you know, obviously I, I thought the, the New Order band was a, a terrific dance development. I loved a lot of the early singles, but they didn't have that rawness of emotion or indeed that voice. They didn't have Curtis's voice. And I think to me in, in 1980, he sounded a lot like as if Jim Morrison had come back.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's fascinating hearing you talk about the quality of writing. So here is a 23-year-old man, and mm-hmm. I'm just going to read out a few of the lyrics. Yeah. And he's, he's uh, in serious pain because it's falling to pieces of Deborah. And in that song that most people would just know the chorus, love, yeah. love will tear us apart again, you know, mm-hmm. fabulous, whatever else. But in the verses, he, he has written, as a 23-year-old, when routine bites hard and resentment rides high, yet there's still this appeal... All my failings exposed, something so good just can't function no more. Mm. As a, very raw, isn't it? As a tribute. Yeah. To a, so, but it, I have to ask, it is the perfect segue, because you are a man who has form when it comes to just a couple of marriages in your back pocket. So could you chat to me about the challenges and how you face them of being a very successful in a very stressful job and being a dad and maintaining or not a, a sort of long-term romantic relationship? Look, I'm
1: very lucky that, um, that my, uh, ex-wives were so patient with my career. Um, you know, when I, I spoke earlier about when I first arrived in Sydney, one of the things that struck me was how many of the people on the old Daily Telegraph had had multiple marriages. And I always used to say, <laughs> well, that, that's not going to happen to me, but you know, a newspaper, especially when you're running it, it is a very, very demanding mistress. And, you know, as you would be aware from reading it, um, I really did throw myself into it. Um, so it was, it was my every waking hour, um, sometimes from six in the morning till well after midnight. And, um, and as digital journalism came in and we all went to 24 hour publishing, I found I didn't really have time to myself on Saturdays either. I'd always gone online to, to check the paper on Sunday afternoons and probably my first 15 years as a editor, I went in every Sunday as well. But, you know, it, I think for a wife to put up with a husband, you know, it's, it's a bit like being in politics, I think. It's all, almost an all-encompassing job. And it's got great rewards and it's terrific fun if you like the business, and I do. But, um, I mean, I've maintained a good relationship with my exes. And I've, because I've got kids from two different wives, the four of them are good friends Um, my present wife, Kathy has four kids of her own too. So the eight of our (laughs) joint family all get on well together. (laughs) Um, we've, we've got sort of three holiday houses where I have my holidays and that's because sometimes we need them for all of the kids and grandkids to come. Right. Um, you know, I think Deborah has been, um, my Deborah has been a terrific, um, mum to my older kids and, um. Christine is now with Peter Gresta um, and they live in Brisbane. Peter's a wonderful sort of stepfather to my boys and I think um, they're better off for having him in their lives. I get on very well with Peter. Um, but really everything's pretty positive with the two and I'm, I'm sometimes surprised that people can have children and 20 or 30 years with somebody and then all of a sudden they don't speak. They could, what does that say about your time together? And I, I guess going back to the song... Even though you know the suggestions that he was seeing another woman at the time, the Belgian producer, um, you know he writes with great love of his of his child and his and his wife. Yeah. So,
0: I mean, that's an amazing story and, and an amazing achievement to to you know have those blended Christmases with all those people. Is it's something that I've noticed, and I'd be fascinated on your uh, perspective, Chris. Is I increasingly feel that people can't deal with nuance, that they, you know, it has to be, you know, a marriage breaks up, therefore I hate him or I hate her, or whatever it is talking about Brexit, climate change, whatever it is, you go, I don't want a nuanced, well, you've just given a wonderful, loving, true, authentic description of your marriages that's, that's not black and white. Yeah. It, it feels real, yeah. but I get a sense that that's not good copy. Yeah if, if if I was doing this podcast in another forum I'd go no 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 mate can we do that again I'd like I want you to say I hate the bitch or whatever is have you noticed the quality of public debate getting worse or is that just me
1: I think it's getting much worse yeah and I I do think it is social media I think complexity doesn't sit easily with 140 characters my um you know my sort of um favorite book on on this whole area of gray areas is uh, Primo Levi and you know primo talks about the gray zone i think a lot of complex issues in life are quite quite gray and you know, it's quite a dark you know thing that that primo levy writes about and but the the complicity between you know some people in the in in the holocaust and their guards is you know only only someone like he could have written about it um you know my um, my older kids um is jewish and um you know, my son with her has decided not to, not to take that seriously but my daughter lives in Tel Aviv and has made her alia and um, and loves being Jewish. So, you know, in a way I've sort of taken the view on a whole lot of things when I write about this in, in my column that, um, you know, it is important that people, especially people in positions of power in the media, understand that you're not a deplorable just because you voted for Donald Trump or you're not a, a mad lefty just because you voted for Hillary Clinton. And it seems to me, you know, there's a lot of what happens in in debate in our country and, and really in the Anglosphere um, forgets about politics as well. I was lucky enough to, to study at Oxford for a little while about, about um, the EU back in the late 90s. It was a, a British government scholarship. And I came away thinking, this is a funny place because... Nobody I speak to likes the EU, but everybody in academia thinks it's important because they think, uh, there'll be another world war in Europe. And I remember saying to various German and French professors, but you guys won't be powerful. You know, no one will care. These are little countries in Europe. Big wars will start with countries like China and India, you know? And I, 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 it struck me at the time that the EU was really a legacy of the 20th century, um, and I'm not surprised that um, that ordinary Brits are quite divided about it. You know, I'm, I think if you live around the city of London and you're one of the big beneficiaries of of global trade, it makes a lot of sense to you. But if you live out in the country, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense. I've spent a fair bit of time in Greece and Portugal recently. I understand why the Greeks hate it. You know, if I, if I want to buy good, cheap clothes, I can get them the same things at a better price in berlin than i can in athens now people in athens don't have high wages but the euro is costing them um a lot in living standards so as somebody who's done a bit of economics i'd say what they should do is abandon the euro you know go back to the drachma have a massive devaluation make themselves a much more attractive destination for even more tourism now you know obviously the um, the central bank um, understands that they do depend on money from from Germany and the EU, but what's in it for France and Germany? Well, th- those countries get markets. So why are there so many Mercedes taxis in Athens? It's because of the EU, and they all <laughs> they're all using the same currency. So so it's really the French and the Germans, you know making sure they've always got a market for those successful products that they've been selling so what you
0: do and what you've just done then is fascinating to me in terms of being a good journalist and a good editor because you have a deep understanding of different sides of the issue and it's complex and it's the gray zone that primo writes about um i have to compliment you on your writing since i've been in the country uh on indigenous affairs you you obviously deeply Care about it, but you don't take a, you know, 140 characters view of it. You write deeply, knowledgeably about it. Would you mind telling us a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I think probably because I spent a bit of time living in North Queensland and working up there, and also when I was a younger man, I played football regularly against um, teams from Boystown and other other parts of the world where you met lots of Aboriginal kids. I suppose I've always felt quite keenly um, that walk walk a mile in another man's shoes thing. Um, you know, I've seen um, friends who had Aboriginal girlfriends be taunted by their own family for that. Um, one of my closest friends in the world is Nicholas Rothwell, who's, who lives with Alison Anderson, the former Aboriginal Affairs Minister from Darwin. Very happy together. and was, But, you know, Alison is probably the senior woman from the Northern Territory. She's probably the last, you know, woman who really carries weight in tribal um, Northern Territory lands. And she says the whole place is falling apart. You know, the, um, the lack of that kind of traditional family authority that did used to keep those places like Yundamir together is, is telling very hard on those societies. I mean, I think one of the related points, you know, that I think it's the, the same reason you and I are interested in AIEF, the Australian Indigenous Education Foundation, I think it's clear that people like Alison, who are educated, get more control over their lives. So, you know, you're just buffeted about by the winds of fortune if you don't have the power of education. So I, I like being involved in something that that does take kids who are bright and does lift them up. I'm, I'm a bit contemptuous of people on the left, some of whom are good friends of mine who criticise me for my involvement in this, and they think I'm cherry-picking the best, best kids from communities, and I, I just don't see it that way at all. I think, you know, even if they never go back to their old community, at least you're giving them a chance but actually some do go back. There are people like Noel Pearson who do go back and they do spend their lives working to lift those communities. And it's always struck me as you know, a big flaw in our country that um, you know, we can talk about this. I've, I've been talking about it as a journalist for nearly 50 years and I, I don't see much improvement. You know, I think you know, Kevin Rudd did the right thing and he, he applied metrics after his apology and we try to have these closing the gap statements every year, but actually the gap isn't closing. And particularly for remote Aboriginal people, people who I see when I go up to far north Queensland or the Territory, um, life is still very, very difficult. And it shouldn't be. You know, people like you know Warren Mundine talk about how much money is being spent on it. But my sort of feeling as a newspaper editor is too often that money was wasted on white bureaucrats you know, a lot of the money that was really earmarked by the feds to support Aboriginals in the Northern Territory did go on Darwin public servants rather than building houses out in the, in the Alice or in New or, you know, other communities. So it does strike me that we do need to apply, you know, some pretty hardcore rational thinking to how we try to address all of this. And it moves, doesn't it? So, you know, back in the 90s it was all about you know, self empowerment and, you know, we'll let these people make decisions for themselves. And, you know, then it that was seen to have not worked. And, you know, we dismantled all of that and we went to the responsibility and, and rights agenda of Noel Pearson. And then now that's being dismantled again. And now everybody's on about, um, you know, a voice to parliament. Um, I personally do support a voice to parliament, but at another level, I've said to Noel many times, I probably actually support more the idea of dedicated seats based on population and geography. Now, this you get yourself into an area a bit like mixed-member representation in New Zealand, but it does strike me people on the right when they say, well, you've got Linda Burney or Ken White. Linda Burney and Ken White don't really represent Aboriginal electorates. They, you know, they may be part Aboriginal people, and there may be some Aboriginal people in their electorates, but their electorates are overwhelmingly white middle-class electorates. Whereas you can look at areas in the, 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 the north of Western Australia or Cape York or the, the centre or the pitlands where you think you could actually throw up terrific local representatives, you know, really smart people who live in those areas, and they could actually focus on doing things in the parliament that benefits those people. But while ever those people are carved off into other electorates, you know, be it, you know, Warren Inch's electorate or, or Bob Catter's electorate, they're not really gonna focus on the betterment of Aboriginal people in, in those in those places. So my own view would be even better than a voice to Parliament would be dedicated seats.
0: Your fourth choice. We are coming back from England and Ian Curtis and we are going up the New South Wales coast to Camden Head. I suspect it's where you might have a holiday property for all those wives and kids, but uh,
1: describe it and tell me why you've chosen it. So it's about uh, 30 kilometres south of Port Macquarie. Um, It's an unusual sort of area in that we've got a large lagoon behind us to the west and a river slightly to the north that flows into the beach right below where we live, and a very large mountain the other side of the river and, and lagoon, and it's called North Brother. Or it's, there's three brothers in Aboriginal legend, and you know they range from Taree through to um, Lauriton. So Lauriton, the local town, sits at the very bottom of North Brother, which is the three biggest of these, these mountains. Either side of, so that there's that lake that goes out to the coast, but there's also very large lakes to the north and south of North Brother. One's sort of fed by the Manning, and the other feeds into the Camden Haven River. So one's called Queens Lake, and it has its own sailing club on it, and on the south side is Watson Taylor Lake. So this mountain is almost swimming in this vast sea of lakes and rivers. Um... The the beach immediately below me is a pretty wild north facing um, surf beach, but on the other side of the peninsula, maybe 200 yards walk, walk is a open south facing beach. So you get a good swell on. Sounds heavenly. Yeah, it's and it's look at it, what it reminds me of, and what people say when they come and see it. it it's sort of a bit like um, uh, Yamba or Noosa were many years ago. So the same sort of geography with the big river and, and different beaches and different breaks. Um, where, where Camden head is, there's 88 houses, no retail at all. So there's no shop. Um, you have to drive into either Dunbogan or Lauriton to buy paper or get milk or anything like that. But it also means nobody comes there to buy anything. So, you know, it's in completely enclosed by national park and, um, and, you know, unless you're going there for a swim or a fish, you wouldn't go there. Yeah. Uh, and is that where you have family Christmases or...? Usually I do, yeah. So my sister lives on a farm west of there in, in the Lawn Valley and my mum's in care in Port Macquarie. is about 30 k's north. So um, all these years later, we've ended up fairly close to each other.
0: Yeah, ha- I have to ask, how did mum uh, and your editorial policy, whatever else, uh, go? Was she just a, a, that's my son, go Chris? Or did, or did you ever call you up and say, how dare you say that about that nice man?
1: Well, you know, being, mum was in Hamburg during the war, so she's very sort of, um, affected by that. So when we were kids, if there was, you know, the Saturday afternoon war movie with Audi Murphy or John Wayne, mum would have to leave in tears. she couldn't hear the air raid sign. So, um, she was upset that I supported the Iraq war, <laughs> so but I guess a lot of people were, um. Overall, I think her politics has moved to the right. She was quite a lefty, used to march against the Vietnam War, but often her leftism is about war. So she's quite hostile to anybody who she thinks is going to kill, you know, violently. And I, I think that makes sense. So her brother was 17 when he was drafted, um, you know, at the end of the war in, in early 1945. He, he made it to the Russian front and was taken prisoner um, six weeks into his military career and uh, ended up in Siberia um, for six years. Um, and when he got back to Germany, he had tuberculosis, and was in hospital for two. So they, they were a family that were kind of pretty poorly affected by the war. Uh, her father um, had a, um, a a war relationship on the other side of the, the wall and a, there was a daughter who ended up, not not meeting my mother and her siblings until after the war came down. Um, and then one of her sisters um, was a nurse and um, married a freedom fighter from Romania who'd, who'd lost his legs under a Russian tank. Um, so, it's, you know, it's one of those really central European stories that you can understand why they're not keen on any more wars, hence the EU. <laughs> uh, yeah,
0: and also, if you are intimately affected by those events you can understand why you might take against people writing about them who haven't
1: been yeah yeah (laughs) i think so i think think that's right yeah
0: so we're coming on to your fifth and final choice uh which is your possession and you've chosen your house in manly
1: you know it's not a a fancy house it's just a sort of three-story um uh, townhouse really not much land um but for me, I'm not really big on possessions. So I've been pretty good at upping stumps and leaving as, as you alluded to earlier. Um, and I don't, I'm not really big on collecting things and, you know, I'm not, I'm not big on watches or cars or anything like that, but I'm very happy there, you know? So when I had to think hard about this, like what possession am I going to say? And I, that's the only one I could really think of. So for me, um, you know, I'm quite content living between Camden Head and Manly. It's, uh, you know, I've got north facing views all the way up to the central coast. I've got a lot of Aboriginal art on the walls, some of it given to me by Rupert, which I'm very pleased with, some, some I bought myself. You know, Kath and I do go and, and, and to, the, to the beach a lot, you know, and I surf. And um, we do that walk along from Ferry Bower twice a day, every day. So when I'm not at Camden Head, I find I don't take my car out for weeks at a time. I, we walk everywhere we go. Even if I'm coming in to see you for a podcast, I walk to the ferry. So
0: Now, you mentioned Rupert. Now, this is not Rupert the Bear. I imagine this is uh, another Rupert. Can you tell me about him? And uh, are you still mates? I mean, I, uh, how does that all work?
1: Well, I haven't spoken to him, you know, since I retired. Um, but, you know, I, I'm sure if I wrote to him, he'd respond. But Look, I, I found Rupert, you know, a very interesting fellow to work for and um, probably not much like his public image at all. Rupert's a little bit shy, personally. Um, I think, you know, even though he's portrayed these days as some mad right-wing ideologue, he's supported lots of Labour leaders and he's quite close to Hawke and Keating, he's obviously quite close to Tony Blair. You know, I think Rupert's quite capable of um, supporting, you know, what he thinks is good for a country at a time. He's still an Australian patriot, so I think he's always been criticised for taking American citizenship, but like most of his big decisions, that was business. But I know, for instance, he did a lot of work on the free trade agreement with the United States. Uh, He's always heavily involved in G'day USA. Um, He still owns his farm, you know, out near Canberra, yes. You know, I've been to the farm with him and the First morning he gets up and he walks to the nearest mountain as hard as he can. You know, he knows all the local drovers by name. He goes drinking with them. You know, I think he's got a great deal of affection for this country. And if you, um, he's got a place in Carmel in Northern California, which looks for all the world like it could be in yes. The, the vegetation's exactly the same. Um, and, you know, I think he's not showy in his personal tastes. You know, if the, the houses are all reasonably modest you know they're not they're not huge glamorous compounds so and i think Rupert is an inveterate gossip you know he loves he loves society with journalists he he likes talking to paul kelly about what's happening in politics but he also likes talking to all the gossip columnists about you know the, the latest <laughs> scandals in the media or in entertainment you know so i think he's you know, he's quite a, an unusual guy. So I think Rupert's somebody who can leave the past behind and live for today. Um, always hungry for knowledge. Um, for years, he sent me the latest books that he thought were fantastic. He'd just package them up and send me copies. So always interested in meeting new people. You know, I think very unusual person. And even though he's got caught up in this highly partisan world that we all now live in, I think probably a great Australian, really. You know, it's a it's a it's an amazing life story to have got that little paper in Adelaide when he was only, you know, still at university in, in the UK and come back and turn that into a global behemoth. It's
0: pretty amazing. So he, I mean, whatever one might think of him, has got an astonishing legacy, which makes me uh, want to ask you is what would you like your legacy to be when you are pushing up daisies in hopefully 60 years time um what do you want people to say behind your back
1: look i i'd like to have thought that i uh, left the paper the oz in a good condition that i left it in a better condition than i found it i'd like to people to think that i was good to my family and good to my kids um, despite the shocking hours, I tried to, you know, take my older kids to sport every weekend and I was quite devastated when at 15, Jake said, I don't think you need to come to cricket anymore. Oh. You're the only dad still coming. <laughs> and I thought, what am I going to do on Saturdays now? Um, you know, so I, I've, i found retirement good. You know, I, a lot of people said, oh, you'll miss the, the paper, but I felt I'd had enough. You know, it was nearly 25 years as a daily editor. It's a very long time to do a job like that. And uh, I still like doing my column about the media. It's it's contained. It doesn't take a huge amount of time, but it encourages me to keep following the media. I've, my son, Jake, uh, bought me golf lessons. So I've started playing golf and I probably play three times a week now. I really love it. Um, just come back from a couple of days up in Bonville, the hardest course I could imagine, and I uh, played 36 holes there in two days, and it was a devastatingly hard course. But you know, I, I still go to the beach and I still surf a lot, and i found um, renewed pleasure as I did in my 20s when I discovered Somerset Maugham in reading for fun again. So I'm reading a book a week now, and I big books, and um, and they're not about politics most of them, which is good. <laughs> it, it, it's so.
0: Wonderful to have had this conversation. You, you've been so open uh, and warm and non-defensive. I can't thank you enough, Chris. Is uh, the last traditional question is always, uh, which is difficult for you because you've met bloody everybody. But is who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next, and why?
1: Mm, well, okay, I can, can I answer that in two different ways? Well, <laughs> we'll let you. <laughs> Look, one of the most impressive people I ever met um, was Yitzhak Rabin, but you can't have him because he's dead. But uh, I went to a function in in Israel and um, we weren't really meant to be there. Richard Paul Freeman, who was doing The World Today and I, escaped our Israeli minders and broke through a blockade and got into this function. And when he found out what we'd done, he spent an hour with us, um, smoking cigarettes and drinking and talking in that incredible, deep bass, baritone, Israeli voice. And he's a guy who I thought of as a genuine hero. You know, he'd um, he'd defended the West Gate of the Old City in 1948 and he'd stood on the first tank when they charged up the Golan Heights in 1967. He defeated Gamal Abdel Nasser in 1957 and he was assassinated by a, a right-wing Jewish nutter. But I thought one of the great liars of anyone I'd ever met. So he would have made a fantastic podcast. <laughs> um, I think probably um, my, my closest friend in the business is still Paul Kelly. Um, right. So Paul is um, godfather of one of my kids. And, um, you know, I think Paul's probably the smartest individual I know. Um, a lot of politicians, when I was the editor-in-chief of the paper, would always consult Paul before they decided to announce anything. And I was quite intrigued how many people of both sides of politics bounced their ideas off him. And he's managed to, unlike a lot of people in this highly partisan media age, he's managed to maintain friendships on both sides. So so it's probably a fairly dour choice, but I'd no, say Paul Kelly. I,
0: I love it. Chris Mitchell, thank you so much for sharing your five choices on The Five of My Life.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: five of my life was presented by me nigel marsh created in collaboration with podcast one australia producer alex mitchell sound production and theme music by darcy thompson and matt nicklish for more episodes search the five of my life podcast go to podcast one australia.com.au or download the podcast one australia app